0: You will never have to go down that road
1: alone. Hi everyone. Now I don't know how you found us today, but if it was via our website, we thought you might like to subscribe to Two Scientists. We're on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and pretty much everywhere else you can find podcasts. So go ahead and sign up. That way you can't miss us. May
0: the road get wider. All right, Two Scientists. Our
1: guest this evening is Dr. Shane Pierce Potler. How are you, Shane? I'm
2: doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for coming out. Um, so, we usually start our podcast by asking our speaker a little bit about their background, where they did their training, and how on earth they ended up working in the field that they are.
2: All right. So, uh, I did my training at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Uh, I was a uh, double major in biomedical engineering and engineering mechanics. And I had the opportunity to do some research down at the Medical Center, and I worked in a lab that was studying cardiac
3: biomechanics,
2: and I just became fascinated with the cardiovascular system and thinking about ways to use engineering to understand it and manipulate it for the betterment of health. And that led me to graduate school. I went to do my PhD at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Uh, That was 20 years ago, and I have uh, not left uh, since. Um, So after I did my PhD, oh, I should say, I studied um, microcirculation. Um, I was really interested, I was passionate about fluid mechanics, I loved the idea that cells could sense shear stresses and that could affect their phenotype and that could affect growth and remodeling in tissues and connecting that to wound healing and I just became infatuated with that whole area and thinking about, again, how to use engineering uh, to try to understand and develop therapies for regeneration focused on microcirculation. That led me to a postdoc again at UVA, but I um, actually switched over to uh, sort of this hybrid, wonky, freaky postdoc where I uh, trained with a plastic surgeon mm-hmm. who was using uh, stem cells harvested from human adipose tissue uh-huh. uh, that was obtained during liposuction procedures, otherwise Yummy. discarded. It was juicy, and uh, and I also did a hybrid postdoc with a cell biologist uh, who taught me all about developmental biology. So. Learned a lot about development in stem cells, and then started my own faculty position 14 years ago, and I've been there in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at UVA ever since. Very cool. How many people do you have working for you now? Uh, right now, I have about 10 people in my lab, not including a small army of undergraduate students.
1: <laughs> we love the small army of undergraduate yeah,
2: students. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, tell us a little bit more about your specific research. I went to your website today, and I'm very easily wooed by pretty pictures and your your um, website certainly doesn't fail
2: to impress. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm a very visual person. I could spend hours and hours and hours under the confocal microscope looking at um, blood vessels, small blood vessel networks and tissues. Uh, and that really, like I said, it was uh, my passion, um, trying to understand how uh, cells organize themselves, specifically in the microcirculation during angiogenesis. And uh, as a graduate student, I realized that th- that process is very complicated, and I needed computers to help me. Mm -hmm. and so that led me into computer modeling uh, really out of desperation like feeling like i needed a crutch because i couldn't keep all the uh, pro and anti-angiogenic factors straight in my head Uh, so that led me to to try to use the computer uh, to help me kind of organize things and then it became obvious that i should be actually using the power of the computer to do prediction um, above and beyond just database you know cataloging of these factors Uh, And so that's where my lab is still, kind of trying to um, combine uh, experimental models of angiogenesis with computational models to um, really untangle all the complex web of uh, networks and and molecules and cell behaviors that um, lead to the growth of a new blood vessel network over time. Mm
1: -hmm. So I think as far as diseases go, we don't necessarily consider that blood vessels are so important because you think of asthma, you instantly think of the lung as an organ that's affected. You think about Alzheimer's, you think about the brain. Even in heart disease, people think more about the heart than the blood vessels, which are incredibly important. So, tell us more about the diseases. Yeah, that's
2: a great question. So, uh, it's a loaded question for me actually, because I see the world completely orthogonally. Uh, for me, the world of diseases, all diseases, ultimately come back to small blood vessels. So, every disease you mention uh, has at, at a, as a substantial piece of its root cause malfunctions in the microvasculature. So whether you're talking about neurodegeneration or cardiovascular disease or complications of diabetes in the eye or chronic uh, delayed wound healing, lack thereof, um, all of those problems uh, ultimately can be um, really pinpointed to uh, the fact that small blood vessels uh, misbehave in those situations. And when that happens, the rest of the tissue is totally screwed. Mm -hmm. So I actually, I actually see the small blood vessels as the cause of uh, (laughs) a lot of, a lot of bad problems.
1: Yeah. So, um, actually it's one of the specialties in our department too, and a lot of them work on like leaky blood vessels and so on. So are there specific
2: issues that you deal with? Yeah. So, um, one of the things I've been captivated by recently is this idea that, um, blood vessels are really uh, kind of integrators, right? Master integrators of metabolism and immunology. They're directing immune cells. They're um, providing obviously nutrients, oxygen nutrients to the tissue. Uh, And so kind of they're at the centerpiece of of so many um, different functions of tissues that uh, I think kind of where my lab is focused is trying to understand some of the conversations between other cell types. In um, mm-hmm. the microcirculation. So what do the macrophages have to say to the fibroblasts as a result of where they were in the microcirculation? Right, and that seems to be, um, I think, a sweet spot for us because it's like a place where we can really harness the power of these computational models and integrate many cell behaviors, mm-hmm. many different cell types.
1: So you said you, you essentially have three different kind of research projects outlined on your website. And the first one uh, involves stem cells. So tell us more about this, I think this is Um, kind of more specifically comes to what comes to mind when I'm thinking about things like bioengineering. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, obviously cell-based therapies are something that have kind of um, been hot for a while and then they were, you know, confusing and I think they're now more confusing than ever and the question about (laughs) how they're going to translate to the clinic and what does that look like is still, you know, really up in the air. Uh, So we did have a project. Um, We still are carrying it on in different ways and shapes and forms, but basically it was to use um, these adipose-derived stem cells that we pull out of uh, liposuction, Mm -hmm. harvested from, you know, bat. It's delicious. (laughs) Uh, Use them as um, cells that can uh, modulate and manipulate angiogenesis, specifically in the setting of diabetic retinopathy. So we actually have conducted a lot of studies where we've injected these cells, um, not just into the eye, to see how they affect retinal angiogenesis in pathological settings, such as diabetes, Um, but other tissues as well. Um, They're truly amazing cells, uh, believe it or not, they're um, obviously, you know, pluripotent, they can differentiate into things um, uh, besides fat, right, Mm -hmm. so they can differentiate into chondrocytes and and, um, you know, many different cell types. We're interested in their capacity to differentiate into vascular support cells or pericytes Mm -hmm. Uh, and we think in that role we've we've been able to show that they actually do support um, stability of new vessels, which is exactly what blood vessels need in diabetes. They're they're unstable. Mm -hmm. Uh, They either uh, grow out of control or they disappear into the dark and uh, anything we can do to stabilize them through stem cells or otherwise I think is going to be moving the needle in the positive direction in terms of therapy.
1: So is it as simple as injecting a particular kind of cell into a particular area of the body and getting them to do something? And it
2: works perfectly every time. (laughs) of course. Problem solved. No, not at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. One of the things that we're learning is that under certain circumstances, I mentioned, uh, you know, cross-reactivity with the immune system, but um, these cells are very good at talking to fibroblasts. And, uh, and, and what even, a fibroblast And even different uh, cells, that, cells that make scar tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, that can can make yes. scar tissue, obviously, they don't always, but under certain circumstances, specifically inflammation, which mm-hmm. can happen in the case of diabetes and diabetic chronic inflammation, um, these cells can do quite dangerous things, like mm-hmm. tell these fibroblasts to make scar, and that's really not what you want to have in the, in the retina. Yep. So, it's yeah, it's not as simple. It's just inject the magic bullet, and they know what to do. There's mm-hmm. a lot of nuances, and we need to ultimately understand these conversations that they're having with other cells to be able to control it.
1: Okay. And so the second thing that you have on your website, which is probably why you know these bozos from IMO at Moffitt, um, this is more the the computer modeling that you use in your yeah. research.
2: Yeah, so as I said, it, I came to computer modeling as a graduate student having a panic attack. Um, and <laughs> it, was, uh, it was kind of my antidote for my confusion. Yeah. Uh, I figured, you know, I wasn't going to keep all of these factors in my head, but the computer could, and it could kind of synthesize them and integrate them. And so that's why I've been using computer modeling. And it strikes me now that, you know, one of the big areas in Biomedical engineering is actually tissue engineering, regenerative mm-hmm. medicine. And that field has really been plagued by a lack of tools for um, sort of deliberate design or model-driven design, right? So we are talking about this earlier. You would never design an airplane without doing a computational fluid dynamic simulation first. Mm-hmm. And it kind of seems crazy to me that you would think about designing A heart or kidney without having a computer model to you know test out your theories and to do um, design to basically Mm -hmm. optimize and validate you know sort of your your design ideas so um, so that's why we do modeling uh, now is that we're trying to position it as a way to help tissue engineers uh, become a little more engineering in their approaches Mm -hmm. by providing them with a way to do model driven design
1: very cool and the third one, I'm going to have to refer to my notes. Oh no, I didn't write it down in my notes. Um, that's all right, that's really <laughs> all we do.
2: No, I'm kidding. Do so you have a third aspect I, of the I research. suffer from uh, my, my good friend uh, from, from Hopkins, Phelan mm-hmm. McGowan, uh, he calls it shiny object syndrome. If you look at my publication record, I actually, I think you, you'll see in 2017 on my website, is um, Shane's midlife crisis publication record <laughs> because I have some of the craziest combination of uh, of interests at the moment. Everything from developing fluorescent dyes uh, in collaboration with chemists uh, to do oxygen sensing in tissues uh, to doing um, forensics, identifying, oh, wow. yeah, identifying um, uh, whether or not there was instances of, of rape by detecting genital abrasions Yikes. out there. And, uh, and then a whole, a whole other category that's focused on uh, medical device design. Believe it or not, uh, one of my patents uh, has to do with, um, with ear tube surgeries that are performed in kids that have chronic ear infections which is one of the most <laughs> abundant surgeries in the, in the country. So uh-huh. I'm really all over the place and probably not such a good way but I think it's the fault of being in an environment that's highly collaborative and having a a insatiable curiosity and not a lot of (laughs) self-control how do you find
3: all your collaborators do you do you seek them out no they
2: they find me i don't know it's a problem with being in charlottesville Hmm. it's like it's the goldilocks side size for collaboration it's not so big that you can't find people it's not so small there's a lot of people that you want to work together like, I so, really am off the rails.
3: So you've not got enough people, basically, to cover it. Yeah,
2: kind of. you It's you've got so, to say it's no so something. easy just to... Yeah, I need to say no more often, I think, but you obviously, but I don't, because I like to, like, do crazy-ass <laughs> shit. I don't know.
3: Well, this was fun, right?
2: It's fun, right? Isn't it fun? Like my, well, you should so, do what, so this what
3: drives is, you, what makes it fun. My,
2: my new criteria for whether or not I say yes to collaboration is, number one... Am I intellectually curious about that topic? And I'm a very curious person, so the answer is like, pretty much always yes. Number two, do I feel like I can bring something unique to the table that can actually contribute, Mm -hmm. right? Is it like real, like can I actually help move forward? And number three, is the other person an asshole, or do I want to hang out with them?
1: So most people would buy a sports car. You go into really,
2: funky fields. You collaborate with crazy people and have a good time.
1: Nice, <laughs> I like it. Um, so on the subject of patterns, do you have any other cool stuff that you'd like to bring up, or is this all very hush hush and you're not allowed to talk about it yet? Patterns?
2: Um, no. Well, a little bit. A little bit I mentioned already. So the, the ear tube insertion device. I collaborated with an otolaryngologist and a pediatrician to come up with a way to um, basically streamline that process. Uh, It's performed um, all the time in kids. Everybody knows a kid that's had to have an ear tube put in their ears and it requires a number of different surgical instruments. Mm -hmm. Um, So we basically worked with some undergrads through a capstone design project and made an all-in-one device. The cool thing about that project was that um, the, the animal model for testing and validating this device is chinchillas. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was super cool. So, we, we spent a lot of money to buy chinchillas from the premier chinchilla farm in Minnesota, if anyone's wondering. And uh, we brought them in. It just so turned out, it, it, the experiments were scheduled to happen in December. Mm-hmm. And so, we did our studies. And the beauty of this is that, you know, after we did the ear tube uh, insertions and collected our data, the chinchillas were fine. So, we put them out for adoption. So, now... In That's Charlottesville, so cool. there are 10 chinchillas that participated in our study. The great thing about chinchillas is their average lifespan is 25 years, so they're wow. going to be around for a long time. The ear tubes have probably long since fallen out, but yeah, it was an amazing study. So I have patents related to that. I have some patents related to some of the stem cell work, um, and then a couple of patents pending related to oxygen sensing.
1: Nice. I like the chinchillas. It seems less um, kind of suspicious than the people who work on lobsters. Like, what do they <laughs> do with those things after they done? They're Uh, fuzzy
2: and cute.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Not the lobsters.
2: Not so much. Delicious,
1: though. (laughs) Very cool. So um, we actually have a bunch of people here. In fact, we have two of our former guests in the form of Dr. Sandy Anderson and Dr. Jacob Scott. Say hello, people. Hello. Hello, people. (laughs) (laughs) And so we're going to be asking our audience to come up with some questions. And actually, the first one is from Heiko Endling, And he says, He's wondering if you could comment on your experience in convincing biologists and clinicians of the potential and contribution of computer models to biology um, and medicine. How that hard is that? That is such a
2: deep question. How long do we have? <laughs> um, so uh, over the years, uh, I have found that that might be one of the most frustrating aspects of my job. I think... Um, you know, convincing, I don't know about convincing, certainly putting myself out there in front of biologists. I like to publish in journals that biologists read. I like to go to Gordon conferences that biologists attend. I even like to make an ass of myself at those conferences, talking about models <laughs> that I get challenged, trying to shoot them down, which usually makes them look better than I do. But at least I'm out there. Um, clinicians, actually, I've found to be a little more accepting, believe it or not, than the biologists. I'm not sure why. Maybe they're as desperate as I was to understand the complexity. Or maybe they're just fine admitting, you know, being baffled. I don't know. But that, that hasn't been as, as hard. Um, one of my favorite experiences, though, is when I was a postdoc um, with this Doug DeSimone. He's a world-renowned leader studying xenopus uh, development developmental biology and morphogenesis and xenopus for frog embryos. And I'll never forget, our very first meeting, you know, I was you know, trying to com- compile a list of rules for my computer model. And I asked him what I thought were very obvious questions. Like, this is where you would start. And his answer back to me, I swear to God, was, you know, I've been studying this for 35 years, and I never actually thought to ask that question. <laughs> and like, I, I nearly like, you know, just shit in my pants. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that seems like the first place you would you that would start, sense. right? But it just goes to show. When you're doing computer modeling, you actually, you know, encounter the biology on a much deeper level than you do if you're only doing experiments. So you 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 got me on my soapbox. <laughs> Ask me a question to get me off.
1: <laughs> I think the, the problem with biologists is that they forget that they too are working on models. It's not like, you know, they're working in this perfectly ideal system where they can record everything they need to record. Like you're working on cells in a dish, that's a model, dude. Exactly. So, um,
2: Everybody makes assumptions yes, at the end of the day. Of Whether you admit it or not, you're making assumptions. Yeah.
1: There's no other way to do science, unfortunately. Why chinchilla, Jacob? Oh, asks. that's wonderful. Their
2: uh, ear drum anatomy and their ear canal is remarkably similar to that of children, of human children. Very similar. I, I love these stories. It's always shape. like,
1: you know, we're better off working with even fruit flies because something about this aspect is more human than you know a mouse or a rat. That's so weird, chinchillas. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Sandy's gonna jump on the mic.
3: So um, I know you work on angiogenesis and of course angiogenesis is really important in cancer and you mentioned in your crazy projects that you're developing oxygen sensing dyes so presumably that's relevant to your angiogenesis work and in, in relation to that what's the life time of the half-life of those dyes. how <laughs> long, how yeah, long we can we it. sense the
2: oxygen <laughs> yes. when we put the dye into the tissue and yeah. why is that important okay that's, a, that's an awesome that's why do we question. care so um, so the way we have been using these dyes so far is putting them into wounds to try to see if they can be predictive of whether or not the wound is going to heal and so we haven't put them on tumors yet, I'll say that. Although my collaborator at UVA, Cassandra Fraser, has uh, worked with other collaborators at Duke to do exactly what you just said, which is put oxygen sensing dyes into tumors. Um, the beauty of these dyes and the beauty of her, of her chemistry is that she can really tailor the lifetime of their sensing capabilities. For us, we just want a snapshot. We want an instantaneous picture of how much oxygen is in the wound at that moment. And that's what we're able to get. Um, it's optical, which means that you need to shine a light and take a picture. So the major limitation is depth. So unless your tumor is on the surface or your wound is on the surface, it's more often that your wound is on the yes. surface than your tumor <laughs> being on the surface. But then um, you're not going to be able to use these dyes. Um,
1: so models are very dynamic, but experimental data is often static. Obviously, we take a single yes, time snapshots. Yes. Yeah. So how do we interpolate, or how yeah. do we? Understand more exactly. Yeah,
2: I think that's one of the um, most useful applications of models. Actually, that's what that's what we spend a lot of time doing. Um, and it's out of that frustration. I would love to be do be able to do dynamic imaging of all the tissues I'm interested in studying. But again, unless it's on the surface and I can shine a light and take a picture, that's not going to happen. So with computer models, we can um, yeah extrapolate or interpolate between the between the points. I think that's a very powerful useful model. We can't get all the data. We can't even afford to get all the data if we even had the techniques. So let's model it because it's a lot cheaper, and there's more opportunities to, uh, you know, calculate other other things that you can't measure empirically. So
1: on a kind of side note, rather than uh, your research directly, um, obviously the Me Too movement has brought mm. the kind of the mm. role of women in in work in general, in anything, to the forefront. And we're sitting at this table with uh, three (laughs) fathers to daughters. um, And I think several of them are very scientifically inclined. Um, So what do you feel about the current state of science
2: for women? You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. That (laughs) is so heavy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's go back to dads because I think dads are really important in this role. So I benefited from having a father who was an engineer, he was a professor at Duke University in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department for uh, 35 years, actually 40 years, retired last year. Um, my dad was my hero, he was my role model. Um, I went into his lab as a kid, I messed around, played with the you know stuff on his benches, uh, hung out with his grad students, I thought science and engineering was very glamorous as, um, you know, experienced it through his life. You would, I know, right? <laughs> but. That's exactly, I'm glad you said that, because he made me feel like doing that was like the coolest thing I could possibly be doing, and I felt like a rock star, and mm-hmm. I felt like it, um, it was something that I liked, and that, that was totally okay. I didn't mm-hmm. have to be embarrassed about that, I didn't have to be ashamed, but I didn't have to apologize for it, I could just love it, and it could be cool, and I could do more of it, and get fulfillment and enjoyment, and go with it. And so I thank my dad for that, and I, I thank all the dads out there that have daughters that show a passion and can um, you know and can nurture that in them. Uh, you know, I will say, being a, a obviously, now full professor in engineering, there's there's not a lot of us. I mean, mm-hmm. there really aren't. It can be lonely uh, at times, but um, I really rely heavily on my friendships with other women and also with other men, actually, with, with my with my male colleagues. Um, because they remind me that it's not about how we're different, it's about how we're the same. Mm-hmm. And how we're the same is a lot more than, than how we're different, which is we love engineering, we love science, we love doing cool things together. So I um, I think, yeah, the relationships and the role models are the, uh, the missing piece. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a question from Jake, I think.
3: <laughs> I'd love to ask a follow-on. Um, as a dad of a young girl who's super nerdy and mathy and sciencey and who I uh, really enjoy helping along in that world. And also as a PI, a young PI in a lab now, which is actually mostly women in my lab. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the climate of late is, has been different than um, ever before. And I think that's really, really good. And I think I, I was sort of raised by a, uh, a wolf mother. And so <laughs> I've never, I've always sort of lived in both worlds between sort of um, feminism and science and, and never had a problem with uh, gender identity in a, in a nice way. But then recently I, I sponsored a women in computational genomics meeting. And the point of it was to foster um, a sense of uh, togetherness for women in that field, which is generally men. And, and I, your, mo- your comment a moment ago about how you know, it's relationships we both that are important to you. I, I guess I wonder how you feel about this sort of idea where we can create groups for only women, groups for only men, and groups together, and how how it how it functions to have um, groups of your own type, and groups of the other type, and groups of both, mm-hmm. and, and the interplay between those.
2: Yeah, I think it's critical that we have all of those. To be honest with you, um, you know, I won't lie. There's certain things that I talk to my female colleagues about that I probably would be crossing the line if I talked to (laughs) my male (laughs) colleagues about those same things, right? Um, And that's cool. That's fine. And I know my male colleagues have that right too, and they should have their time, you know, to to have those conversations without, you know. Um, But you have to have the the mixture because I think that's really the most fulfilling. And at the end of the day, I'm all about diversity. I think diversity of thought, diversity of experiences. I've seen time and time again, the hardest problems are really um, only going to be solved by uh, having diverse teams that have Diverse expertise, diverse backgrounds, diverse everything, right? The more diverse the better. I'm a firm believer in that mm-hmm. um, and gender is just one example, you know, yeah. many other examples.
3: Yeah. No, I, I, I hear that entirely. and I think it's it's one example that's currently a hotter topic than other diversity mm-hmm. points, but I think it's important that we remember that other diversity points are there too. And I think um, even in what I consider to be a diverse lab that I have, there's some gender diversity, but I have a little bit less diversity in other points, and I think it's important that we reach out.
2: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. My new, uh, not new, I've kind of been working towards this over a number of years. When I recruit students, um, number one, I look for grit. Are they going to sort of cave at the first instance of uh, uh, experiencing adversity? Because mm-hmm. um, everybody knows that science requires grit. That's number one. Um, number two, are they passionate? Do they, you know, do they have a passion? Do they have passion about anything? Can they experience a passion, a sort of a drive, right? Something that like pulls them from within to do, to compel them to do something. Um, and then number three, are they different than me? Because hmm. hmm. the last thing I want to do is cool. create a lab <laughs> full of Shane Pierce Cotlers. <laughs> that would be god awful.
1: <laughs> that reminds me of being John Malkovich. <laughs> <laughs> John Malkovich. Exactly. I,
3: I love that Great you movie. didn't you didn't even mention how their scores are, how smart they are. So I I like I like pride myself on saying first passion, then diversity, then smarts. And like you just went way beyond that. And we're just like, you Mm -hmm. know what? And it's true. I mean smarts is once you've gotten to a certain level, it really doesn't matter as much. And and what is Smarts? It's It's some objective measure. Yeah, Yeah. 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 totally
2: agree. Yeah. Hard to measure. So
1: there's something that um, I've been noticing coming up more and more on Twitter, which is this idea of imposter syndrome. So uh, if the general public doesn't understand what this means, it's that every scientist thinks that they're a complete and utter fraud and someday they're going to be found out for the dumbass that they are. And, um, yeah, so this is this is a really good point to bring up, yeah, the idea yeah. that, you know, what, what do you mean by intelligence? What do you mean by smart? Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, I think a lot of people working together is what's going to answer the problem. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not even about individual intelligence. It's...
2: It's group intelligence. It's group. It is. The problems are too hard now. We can't solve them in isolation. We need each other.
1: Yeah. And so, da- one of the things that David and I notice a lot is that, especially in movies and um, Hollywood depictions of scientists, first of all, those guys always work in industry. They're never in academia. It's always a guy. And on top of that, it's just one lone genius, and that's not
2: how science works. Not at all. Not at all. We need some better movies. <laughs> we do. Get on it, Brad better Pitt. Movies. Yeah. <laughs> or whoever. Or whoever. Like, maybe
1: not Brad Pitt. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Why
3: not? He'll be fine.
1: Does he qualify as
2: diverse?
3: So often do you actually listen to podcasts? Help I'm
2: going help. to now. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't yet. I'm going to. My whole lab will. Spread the word. <laughs> a must. I'll get the entire University of Virginia.
1: Um, On that note i would like to say thank you so much for speaking to us today. Like this has been awesome fun. Um,
2: thank you for having me. I've yes.
0: enjoyed myself early. Yes. With the magic in their me make all my choices, all my pieces, don't you know.
2: your My students really get scared when I put on a lab coat. And offer to help. Like, the fear, like, the look of fear in their eyes is priceless. So we had this huge, huge experimental, you know, terminal time point, all hands on deck. We had a lot of stuff we had to do. And uh, I, I was there to help, like, a good PI. So I put on my lab coat and my job, okay, this is the job they gave me. Weigh tissue across the hall, put it back on microscope slide, and bring it back. Like, easy enough, easy enough. Weigh the tissue. Got it. So, I take my first sample and I'm feeling good. I go across the hall, I weigh it and you know, like zero it out, then weigh it, and then I write it down, bring it back. I'm like, okay, I'm rolling, all right. So by the time I get to like, I don't know, the 13th or 14th sample, I'm getting a little overconfident. I'm kind of just sauntering across the hall, weighing it, coming back. Something happened, I'm not sure what, I think there was a breeze in the hallway. I dropped the slide. Oh dear. Tissue pops off. I'm on my hands and knees, like looking for like an <laughs> earring. Right, my colleagues are like walking up and down the corridor, like, "Do you need some help? What are you looking for?" I'm like, "Oh, nothing. Just Keep walking. Keep walking." Go away. I'm feeling around for this tiny little piece of mouse skin, and I find it. I wash it off, to get back on the slide, and bring it into my students. I don't think they know. So I don't think they know that they that will. tissue was they on will. the floor for like ten minutes, and I was like feeling around, like looking for earrings.
0: The five-second rule becomes a ten-minute rule. Totally fine. As long as you do do, you will never have to go.
1: Today's episode was quite the reunion of guests. If you haven't already heard them, our debut was with Jacob Scott, and Sandy Anderson was the star of Cancer by Numbers. Thanks also to our friends Heiko Endling and Robert Vandervelde, who came out to ask questions. Last and certainly not least, we thank The Curries for their wonderful track, May the Road Get Wider. If you loved it, you can find more of their music at thecurriesmusic.com.
0: Me, love is a gigantic kaleidoscope, always different but always beautiful. Those are your legs, it's to your body, it's to your brain. With all those flaws, but they're yours, and I can't tell you where to go.
2: special way